Welcome to Belkin's Growth Podcast, hosted by Michael Maximoff, co-founder and managing partner at Belkin's. Today's guest is Jerry Donovan, SVP Sales Strategy and Sales Operations at SalesLoft. SalesLoft is the number one sales engagement platform with headquarters in Atlanta and 400 people on board, servicing 2,000 clients. Jeremy's expertise includes marketing, sales, product strategy, new product development, and product management. Michael and Jeremy talk about the sales operation at SalesLoft, SDR role in the sales process, and best practices for SDR recruitment and client generation. Enjoy listening. You are SVP of sales strategy and operations, right? So what is your primarily role within your company? Are you working with a sales team? Are you working with customers? The job title would imply a little bit more internal. So working across the sales team to make sure that we have the right KPIs, dashboards, and so on, that we have our territories properly assigned and our reps prioritizing the correct accounts within those territories, making sure that deals are getting executed properly at the, at the finish line with our, with our deal desk, sort of traditional elements of, of what you would think of in sales operations. And then within the sales strategy function, that's really thinking about not what's happening now, but what's happening three, six, nine, 12 months from now, just to make sure that we have the right capacity in place, for example, or we have the right sales processes in place to be successful. So those are the pieces. On the customer side, I do actually have a ton of customer involvement simply because since we sell to sales professionals and sales leaders, they'll often want to talk about how SalesLoft actually uses our own product or even independent of our product, how SalesLoft runs our own sales operations. So I'm often sharing best practices with peers who are curious about how we handle territory, which has nothing to do with our product whatsoever. I would love to talk about that during today's session with you. So I've seen on your LinkedIn company page that you have about 2,000 paid customers right now. Is yeah, that, a little is over 2,000. Right? Yeah. yeah, that's right. So you, you service marketers and sellers, but what type of companies are they are in? Is it small, mid-sized, and enterprise? What's that sort of like? It runs the spectrum of, of enterprise, SMB, and what we call emerging, so much, much smaller companies. So it really runs the gamut across all of those. And industries we mainly focus on, historically our bread and butters and is other SaaS companies actually. So, but I would say more generally B2B sales centric companies would be our, would be our target. Okay. And then based on your sort of business model, you have different pricing tiers and what is the difference between those pricing tiers? And again, I'm just let me kind of give you some context why why I'm asking this because obviously, you know, in SaaS business, based on the way you're selling your product, right? Based on the subscription, you probably have different salespeople within your organization that are focusing on the mid-size or enterprise level companies, negotiating big, big deals. And there are those that are, you know, taking inbound qualifying closing. So I would want to talk more about that later on, but sort of wanted to first establish the, the sort of the, the understanding of, of your products and the pricing and the different tiers, and then just roll into the team composition and what parts of the team are handling, what parts of, of the, you know, of the final basically. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So right now we have, as you described, tiered set of products. All of our salespeople, regardless of whether they sell into smaller companies, mid-sized companies, or enterprises, can sell that suite of products. And those tiers 
you know, I don't want to make this a marketing commercial. So I'll, more abstractly, the tiers relate to the fact that we have three main value propositions and those value props get associated with features that go into the products to be a little more concrete and not super abstract about that. The three kind of value props that tie to features that we have, one is cadences, which is all about workflow for how you prospect and engage your customers, the traditional sales engagement space. Then we also have what we refer to as conversations, which is the conversational intelligence space. So the, the peer set that people would be more familiar in that space would be Gong, Chorus, ExecVision, and so on. So we also integrate that. That is one of the entitlements that exists in our product packaging. And then the third thing is deals, which allows account executives or, I guess, retention, customer success-focused people to manage their opportunities and know what the opportunity health is so that they can actually take action to advance opportunities forward. And there's a number of companies in that space, but I guess the closest competitor that people probably would think of is, is Clary. So people may have different needs for different people within their organization. So we might sell a mix of different seat types, if you will, based on the need of the organization for those three core value propositions. Okay. And then how much money you're making per customer on the low end and on the high end? We don't share that publicly, so I can't, uh, I can't Okay, answer. got it. Um, Sorry for that. Can I get information about the average monthly subscription? Uh, is it like around $100, $500, $1,000, It just varies so much by segment. I mean, we have some, some smaller companies who where we have big contracts. Some of the larger com- customers are public. So for example, IBM and Google and, and so on. So LinkedIn, those are all kind of public. So, I mean, those, those can be very, very large contracts. Okay. Got it. And then with regards to you acquiring those customers, right? So how big is your, your, is your sales team right now? We have, I believe we have about somewhere between 100 and 150 salespeople. 150 salespeople. And do you guys have a, like a full cycle search process where you get the lead, talk, qualify, close, and then support? Or you have sort of like SDRs, sales executives, account managers? What's the, the sort of like the team structure there? Yeah, we're pretty hyper-specialized, hyper as you would imagine in this space, right? Running a little bit, I guess, of that predictable revenue playbook. So, so we have absolutely SDRs who are sourcing opportunities for our account executives. We do separate inbound from outbound SDRs. So we, we don't have all-bound SDRs. We, we don't think that makes sense. So we, uh, those inbound and outbound SDRs feed our account executives with opportunities. The account executives then manage those opportunities to close and will retain the commercial relationship with that account until the renewal. So any upsell, which is very common in year one, they, they will take care of. In parallel, when the customer signs, they first obviously go through implementation. So we have implementation people assigned. We have customer success people who are responsible for the, the non-commercial part, right? They, as it sounds, they're responsible for the customer success. So they're driving adoption and usage and, and providing advanced support for those customers. And then once the year ends, then we move into account managers. So account managers only own accounts that are at least aged one year, and then they are responsible for the commercial part of the relationship. And the CSMs obviously continue. Talking about SDRs, so 150 salespeople, how many of them are SDRs? 40 are SDRs. 40, 40 SDRs. And what is the sort of like the team or department structure? Do we have like a, an SDR tiers, like senior SDR, junior SDR, team leader? 
Structurally, I mean, we have a director of managers and, and uh, SDRs. The SDRs go through three promotion tiers. So it's sort of SDR1, SDR2, SDR3. And that's independent of the segment that they serve. So yes, we do segment our SDRs, whether they're serving the SMB world, the mid-market world, or the enterprise world. But we don't do a progression across those three, it's not like you you enter in SMB, you get promoted to mid-market, you get promoted to enterprise. It doesn't work that way because they're not SDRs long enough to go through. I guess you could do those maybe six months, six months, six months. In theory, you could do that, but we don't do it that way because that would, that would be too disruptive. So instead, you go through that sort of level one, level two, level three within that segment. And historically, we, uh, uh, and I really love this model, is, is it's extremely objective. There's no subjectivity to it, which is you, you have to, in order to be eligible for promotion to account executive, you have to source 150 opportunities. So at the 50 opportunity mark, you graduate from an SDR1 to an SDR2. At the 100, you go from SDR2 to SDR3. And then at 150, you're promotion eligible for, for AE. So it's, it's extremely objective and feels very fair and balanced that way. And then they need to source 50 opportunities to get from level one to level two, and then it's six months. So they are basically are make their uh, their KPI is about 10 opportunities month over month, right? It's like 10, 50. You got something. it. It is exactly 10. 10. Okay. Yep. And they have to ramp, which, so that's why it's about a year and a half for them to get through that process. I wanted to touch base more about the, the SDR workflow. So you are hiring all the SDRs in Atlanta or they are scattered across the, the U.S.? Almost all of our SDRs are in Atlanta. We have a handful in Indiana through acquisition of another company. And then we have SDRs also in London. We have a London office. So those are, those are where our SDRs are, but otherwise not scattered. So we do have other offices. We have a, a New York office. We have a San Francisco office, but we don't hire SDRs in those locations. It's economically doesn't make sense if you can hire people in yeah. lower cost of living places. Yeah. And then now they work remotely. So how is that for you? I mean, have they been working remotely before the the whole pandemic happened? Or No, maybe? they had not been working remotely. And fortunately, right, is I think the tools we use make it easy, right? Zoom Info, LinkedIn Sales Navigators, using the core sales loft platform to do their job. So from a tools and technology point of view, that was a pretty seamless transition. I think the biggest challenge with the SDR function remotely is probably for the managers to coach. Like we can track activity also. So that's not an issue. In fact, activity levels, since people are working from home, are way up because they don't have to commute. So activity levels have been great. Opportunity generation levels have been great. If I were an SDR, the thing that I think would be hardest is just like getting coached remotely and and having the energy of the team. When I would walk the floor and People are, they're having, right, it's a healthy culture on the SDR floor. They've they got a toss in the football. They've got a basketball hoop set up. They're trading. And then even more seriously, right, they're trading ideas for what works and what doesn't work. So you, know, you have to find ways to synthesize the energy as well as the best practice sharing. And, and we're, I think we're making good progress at doing that. You know, I started with this just to kind of to touch base on the ramp up period. So you mentioned you have a, that surf period, right? So what's the surf, the time that you need to up to hiring the SDR to get it to the point where the SDR can, you know, can can hit quota on a monthly basis? And then do you have, what is the sort of like a coaching period for you? And what does it consist of? I mean, do you guys have external program that you use to hire 
kind of coach SDR. So you basically have all the internal process for the SDR and then how much time it takes to, to kind of from point A to point B to get the SDR up to speed with all what you're doing. And then, you know, what's the process there? I've talked with, with someone a few weeks ago about their SDR process and they, they said that their training is more like shadowing. So they would like an SDR with a senior SDR and then they basically go through that shadowing process for a week or two and then just a few sort of like training sessions and that, that, that's it. So what's the, the, the process for your company? Because I mean, considering that you have like 40 people that you probably yeah, have like some little, turnover. It's more, dis- well, it's more, yeah, but it's, I guess it's more disciplined than what you described. So we... We have an incredible sales enablement function in the company. For how many people we have, salespeople we have, our ratio, our coverage ratio of sales enablement to sales is quite high. We currently have four people on our sales enablement team for the 150 or 100, 100 to 150 uh, salespeople. So it's quite high. And we actually, within the sales enablement team, we have a dedicated sales development, sales enablement person. And that individual was one of the top managers. He was an SDR. And then he was one of our top SDR managers. His name is Colin Waldrip. And he recently moved over into the sales enablement team. So he is fully dedicated towards ramping and ongoing training and support for the SDR team. And right, so we're not using an external system. I think like a lot of companies, we have a hodgepodge of of our own ideas and and all the external ideas that we're able to to call from books and peers and so on, they go through about, I think it's a two-week kind of intensive, regular training program, as you would expect, with you know some asynchronous training, as well as some role, a heavy amount of role play. And then after that two weeks, they hit the phones, but they are heavily supported and they continue training, both formal training through the sales enablement organization, as well as role plays and coaching with their managers. So, so that training is ongoing. And then, yeah, as it, the, Colin and the rest of the sales enablement team, as well as the managers are supporting the SDRs, both again, in ramp and beyond. If I am uh, new on the job, right. And then when you built your training program for your SDRs, have you used a lot of like external resources? Like you mentioned, predictable revenue, is it like a, a must read book for the SDRs for you guys or are I'm not close enough to it to answer the question. I am not aware of any must-read books for them. I am a humongous reader. We could probably spend the whole podcast talking about sales books, nonfiction books, fiction books, sci-fi. Like You can get me started on books. I have acknowledged that relatively few people actually read books cover to cover. And I don't know what the proportion is in... I don't know what the generation... I used to think Gen X was young. I'm Gen X. Now Gen X is old. It's the way I used to think of, you know, it's the way I used to think of baby boomers. So I feel like I'm an old person now. <laughs> so I don't know what the 25-year-olds 20, of today are called, millennials or something like that. 25 years old millennials and then the 20s year old are Zoomers, right? Are Zoomers, yeah. So I suspect having a 19-year-old of my own that that reading books cover to cover is... I wonder if it's like even more rare now in the age of Facebook. But anyway, that's my that's my side comment on I think it is important to read. I wish more younger people read, but anyway, I've acknowledged that they don't read, so I don't expect that they have any required cover to cover reading. And you don't have that sort of requirement for your SDR. So in your training process, there's no sort of rule of thumb saying that 
you know, you need to read these five books and then you go from junior to senior. If you don't read them, then you don't have No, anything. no, we don't tie. There are certifications, absolutely, that go on, but they're more like one-off certifications on particular skills or product knowledge or value prop messaging, right? So we, we definitely train and certify. But again, in order to get promoted from SDR 1, 2, 3, and then become uh, AE promotion eligible, there's only one metric that matters, which is go from 50 to 100 to 150 opportunities generated and it's clear as day. Those who engage, what I'll say is like, I think the, the incentives are aligned in that those who engage in A, activity, and B, making themselves more effective by being paying attention and diving into the training are the ones who will be more successful. There's tons of research out there that says that for learning to be effective, it actually has to be challenging, right? If, if you just get easy stuff thrown at you and, and don't challenge yourself, then you're not going to learn. So for example, if there's, I mean, I've seen SDR teams where let's say uh, whatever LMS you use, Lessonly or, or MindTickle or LearnCore or whatever, whatever you use, I've seen instances where sort of those modules come out and then all the SDRs sort of gather together and give each other the answers. and they're missing the point, right? The point is not getting a passing score on this little lessonly. The point is to challenge yourself to think because that is what's actually going to help you absorb the material, make you a better SDR, help you get promoted to account executive faster. So like sharing the answers, it's funny, like in school, that's considered cheating and in the work environment, it's can be considered collegial, but I, I view it as really unfortunate when I, when I see that happen. Unethical, right? With regards to hiring of the SRs, and again, I'm not sure if you are you know, familiar with the process, but the question that I have is whether I need to hire people that has been on the job already and have some sort of experience, or it's better for me to train and to sort of like hire fresh people that hasn't been on the job, and then I can get them all the information that, that I need them to have. So what is the sort of like hiring way for you guys with regards to the experience? And then if you hire folks that didn't have experience in the space, have you seen that there are particular professions that those folks had before joining the Azure teams that then now they can progress and propel themselves even in a more efficient way just because of their prior experience? Yeah, I can comment on this very directly. So many people would probably answer that off of gut opinion. I'm an engineer originally and remain someone who's a student of data science. I don't want to call myself a full-on data scientist. So we actually answered this in a very fact-based way. We pulled every SDR that ever worked for salesforce.com, for Salesforce, in the history of Salesforce. And we sent that out to, we used Upwork for this, to fill in biographic data for them. When they joined Salesforce, where, where had they gone to school? Did they have a master's degree? Did they have a law degree? What was their prior job if they had a job before they joined? What was their role? What industry did they work for? When they were in college, did they play sports or not to figure out whether that mattered? All these things, right? And then we define success as they got promoted from SDR to AE at Salesforce. That was our, that was our definition of success. And we looked at you know, what was more likely to make somebody a successful SDR. I don't have the full list in my head, but of some of the things that you said, we found that people who were SDRs elsewhere before joining Salesforce as an SDR were less successful. So that was, that was a, a negative predictor. We found that 
the school you went to, like the rank of the school you went to did not matter. Most degree types do not matter with one exception, which is if you have a STEM degree, science, technology, engineering, or math degree, Mm -hmm. but there are so few SDRs who actually have STEM degrees. If you ever see someone applying for an SDR job who has a STEM degree, hire them immediately because they're very, very, very likely to be successful. Uh, But again, it's rare. And sports was an interesting one. So everyone thinks sports matters. What we found was playing sports in college does not matter with one interesting twist, which is if you separate individual sport athletes from team sport athletes, having played an individual sport was predictive of success in the role. So for example, I don't know, swimming, tennis, golf, track, which yes, you get a team score, but you're, you're really, it's an individual competition. So those gymnastics, those sorts of things. But if you were on a team sport like baseball or basketball or football, which is what a lot of people are, even soccer, which is what a lot of people think about as being like athletes I want to hire into sales, they're statistically no more predictive in that it was about a 2000 person sample. They're statistically no, no more likely. And then I know I'm going on a bit, but I want to answer all your questions. The other one was industry. The industry you came from does matter, at least at, you know, again, in that Salesforce sample of people successful at Salesforce, those who came from the professional services world were more likely to be successful and very specifically those who were former recruiters. And then the last piece, and then I'll put it all together and then we'll talk about what the ideal profile is. The last piece is work experience. We found that people with about two years of work experience were to be successful. So putting that all together is like, if I were to, to pick who I would hire, my two key criteria, sorry for the verbal stumble there, are I would hire recruiters with two years work experience. I think that's a common profile to be able to hire. There are enough of them. And especially right now, unfortunately, a lot of recruiters are probably losing their jobs. I have deep empathy for them. The good news is those people make incredible SDRs. So those are the SDRs I would hire. And then if you're super lucky, then you could filter for former individual sport athletes. And then the rare, the rarest of the rare would be those that also have STEM degrees. But I think that I would not use that as a selection criteria because you won't have enough, enough people to hire. It's a very sort of like data science driven approach for hiring SDRs. And then do you have the same sort of like data driven approach for the, the internal SDR operation? Like what to send, whom to send, how to send, when to send, the data driven approach for the outreach? You have the same sort of like Yes, we're incredibly data-driven and we have models, statistical predictive models for account assignment that tell us based on about 15 or 20 different factors, how likely an account is to become an opportunity, how likely an individual is to get attached to that account. So yes, we have a a high degree of sophistication around that. This um, data-driven approach, is it also relating, uh, relates to the way the SDR works, for example, how they send emails, how many emails they send per contact, and so on and so forth. And if that is the case, then do you think that it sort of like stops the SDRs from thinking out of the box with regards to you know being creative with their approach and creating some new things that hasn't been tried before? Because I'm, I'm asking this because I kind of have a very similar problem right now because I, I have a team of 20 SDRs. And we also are sort of like, we are not the process driven, but we like everything to be very clear so that when there is a person on the job, that that person knows that all of the things that has been done before and what's needs to be done. And when I see that the SDRs that 
that started working with us and they've been on the job for a year and they've been just going through that process. When there is a problem, when there is a mistake that you need to, you know, to act fast and be very creative, they don't have that skill because mm-hmm. they rely heavily on everything that already been provided to them. So what's your take on that? On the first part of the question, I like your insight on what do they do when there's a problem. On, on the first part of it, I'll start by saying, I don't know when this, you, know, you have a different epiphanies that you encounter throughout your life. And one of the epiphanies I remember having when I was probably in my 20s was that constraints foster creativity, which is a weird thing to say, but it's, it's like, I think one of the Apollo missions, right? Maybe it was Apollo 11, Apollo 13. I can't remember which one it was, right? There, there was this famous thing that everyone talks about where something was wrong and then they, they got all the stuff that was inside the capsule and, and they had to figure out how to fix it with just that available set of things. So that, that's that example of basically constraints foster creativity. And I've seen that throughout my life is like, I actually want to know what my boundaries are within something so that I can innovate within those boundaries. I would apply that to the SDR world as well, which is, yes, we are prescriptive in the cadences, right? So the number of touches that they do after what period of time, what the default starter messaging is within those. We don't have them memorize scripts. So I think there's creativity within the talk track, but we do A-B test what we say lightly we do very rigorously A-B test the, the uh, subject lines, readings, email, body content, length, even how we comes down to how we sign off. So like we know that the highest reply rate comes from a one word subject line in general. And so for us, and that's usually your company name for So for us, our starting subject line is sales loft. We know that when you put the greeting, rather than saying Michael or hi, Michael or hello, Michael, it turns out that, hey, Michael, is the best. We know that the first sentence is perfectly fine to start with I, like I noticed, blah, 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 or I hope, like that's a perfectly fine thing to do. We know you should not end that first sentence with a question mark. You actually should end that first sentence if you can do so genuinely with an exclamation mark. We know the email body length should be 50 words to 100 words. We know that you should sign off with best as opposed to thanks or thank you or whatever. So like we do engineer a lot of those things, but then we also allow significant amount of creativity that we, we expect, not just encourage, but expect our reps to personalize 20% of the template because we know that you can double your reply rate if you personalize 20%. But we also know that if you go beyond 20%, you're wasting your time. I think there's a lot of creativity to be had within those constraints. And I always encourage SDRs like, yes, this is a, it's the hardest job in sales. It's like the most grueling, demanding, can be extremely monotonous. I try to set that expectation that it is an 18-month grind, unlike probably anything you'll ever experience again. But when you get through that 18 months, you've opened the door to incredible earning potential as an account executive and as a sales leader. So you just got to like get through it. And how do you get through it? You get through it by by making every day like an interesting challenge of testing something new that you know maybe no one told you to do, right? Like just test something and see if it works for you, right? We don't see you have to do it exactly this way. We try to give them right flexibility to do that. To your latter point about like if they hit a hiccup and they don't know what to do, I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen that. I was actually thinking about the transition from SDR to AE. And what I can tell you is based on our own data and things I've observed elsewhere, 
if you are an SDR, like take that Salesforce example, like if you were an S, uh, and this is true, by the way, because we studied this too. If you were promoted into AE from SDR at Salesforce or Salesloft or wherever, you're far more likely to be successful as an account executive than if you were hired externally. So both in terms of your, your year one, in particular, revenue attainment, quota attainment, as well as you know, your likelihood of being successful and moving up the ranks in the outer years. So I feel like the SDR experience sets people up for success in that way because it teaches them to grind and to prospect, which I think is so important. So I have not observed what you talked about where they, they hit a wall, but I also may be too far removed. I did run our SDR team for about a year. I had not observed that there, but I was also managing the managers. So I don't, you know, like. Damn, it's sort of inspiring that what you just shared, especially yeah. like the, the part when you were just uh, giving some, uh, you know, like rough data, what works and what not works. I'm also like sort of like a geek of, you know, like, so, you know, like small tricks, but they small you know, can give, you know, g- give a great difference with regards to the way you market your product or service. Like one of the examples you know, there's approach like I'm looking for the right person, right? And when you, instead of you just say, hey, I'm looking for the right person, you put a, a colleague name as a, a like a variable, right? Yeah. And you say, hey, you or or John or John Doe or something, right? And then you say, um, hey, John, I'm looking for the person to speak about this. And I'm not sure if I need to talk to you or your, uh, or your co-CEO, John. And then it's huge because then instead of you say, hey, I'm looking for the right person, you mentioned your colleague name and he say, okay, so... You know what? No, talk to John, right? Because he is the yeah. right person about that. And then you you send an email to John, say, "Hey, John, I just talked to Michael. He said that I can reach out to you about this." So they say, "Michael, uh, kind of John referred you, right?" It's like in the yes. subject line. Yeah, one of the most killer ones someone prospected me with was rather than sending an email to me, they sent an email to my boss, and they said, "Should I be talking to Jeremy?" And then my boss forwarded it to me. That was a job I was new to when I got that email. It was probably within my first month or two, especially then. I'm anything my boss sends me, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna assume they premeditated that this is important and I need to read it and, and so on. So I thought that was a, a killer thing to do is send to the person's boss and say, should I be speaking to, or even somebody else senior in the company that would likely know your prospect, should I be talking with should I be speaking with Michael? Yeah. Is a killer, killer approach. We also tested an approach where we had like three people that were sort of like decision makers and one was C exec and then two were like a VP and head of director level. Mm-hmm. And then we reached out to them first. And then from the, from the SDR, uh, under SDR name or something. And then we had a, a CEO name as well, like CEO mailbox and mm-hmm. that we were using like well, for CEO of Belkins, right? And then we reached out to their CEO saying that, hey, I just sort of received uh, your contact details from my team that talk or reached out to your colleague and I just wanted to level this up to this higher level and talk about this. Should I tell my team that your company is interested? And that's sort of like, you know, like it's a high heavily sort of personalized approach where you just kind of level up the, the decision making process effective. there. Talking about the rough numbers and the data science approach that you guys had, I have a question about the call to action because you know like I think that about five to ten years ago there was a thing that you cannot just say your call to action, you don't just say, hey, if you're interested, let me know, or I would love to talk, let me know when you're available. But you put in like a, an exact name, exact like time and date, say, hey, are you available to tomorrow or next Tuesday at 2 p.m.? And that's sort of like tricks the psychology for the person, right? Because then the person can say, check the calendar, 
no, I'm not available at that time, but I'm available at that time. So that increased the conversion, right? But mm-hmm. I think that like a few years ago, only the last five years, so many companies and, and individuals start using that approach. So now it's sort of like, you know, like annoying, right? When you say and people just mentioning like the calendar or something. So now I see that something, hey, I, I appreciate your feedback or let me know, I can send you more details, so on and so forth. So have you seen there is a difference between the CTA mentioning the exact time and date and is, is that still works right now? Or you need to be more like gentle with your approach and be more not very oppressive? I looked at this about, I don't know, three, four months ago. And I found that that the CTA didn't matter. Just keep it kind of short and tight. And no matter how you craft it, it, it actually does not matter. There was just yesterday, there was a, a post put out by Gong about this. And they am trying to remember exactly what they said, but they, they said that, let me see if I can find it real quick. It's actually, it's worth a, a pause here to hunt this down. The post that was put out basically said in, in early stage prospecting and cold emails, they said that like a, basically any interest in speaking CTA was the best and then kind of open-ended what time works for you or a very specific CTA like, hey, are you available Wednesday at 2 p.m.? That those were not as effective. They were only about half as effective. So just sort of asking any interest was like twice as effective as the others. I don't know. I was not able to replicate that finding in, in the data that I looked at. And I looked at literally millions of emails to do that. So worst case, it doesn't matter. Best case, asking effectively like any interest in, in speaking or something to that effect, are you interested in speaking in, in more in general? You know, they say is better. So why not? Can't hurt. Try that one. And if you're looking for that post, just look up Devin Reed at Gong on LinkedIn. And the title of that post is this surprising cold email CTA will help you book a lot more meetings. You mentioned that you look at millions of emails. If that's okay, me asking in which way you can aggregate that kind of data and sort of like from the data science standpoint, do you sort of like filter out or measure out or what's, you know, what's the process there? If I were to want it to, to have the same sort of, you know, study internally and I, if I can do that, is it very complicated? Do I need to be a data science person for that? Or there are some tools and tricks for me to be able to leverage that? I'm sure there probably are some off-the-shelf things. I mean, the way we do it probably requires a, a degree of um, of complexity. So we we store all of our customer data um, in a customer in a in a data warehouse. The data warehouse removes personally identifiable information PII because you have to be very very careful with that. So we remove any personally identifiable information, and we have tools that we built that are you know, Python scripts and so on that allow us to kind of ask questions across millions of emails that tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of emails. We can ask those questions like, if you put this word in the subject line, how does the reply rate compare to to the average? So we can't look at, because of the PII restriction, right? We can't look at any individual email, but we can we can interrogate the emails subject line, body, whatever. We did two interesting ones this past week. One was, are GIFs good or bad, right? If you put a GIF in, and it turns out that that GIFs actually are neutral. You're no more likely to get a reply than if you don't have a, than not with a GIF. 
another person, uh, someone else asked another customer because we're often a- answering these, you know, for our customers uh, asked when you put a hyperlink in an email, does it matter whether it's a raw URL or does it matter? Or can you use like hypertext instead where the URL is hidden behind whatever standard plain English you have? And it turns out that there's another one where there's actually no difference between the two. Someone else did another study this week that I read that said, and we didn't check this one. There's a caveat to those two that I said, which is if you use like a, a URL shortener, like bit.ly or goo.gl, like whatever the, the shorteners are, that those shorteners actually have lower click-through rates than not using the shorteners. So anyway, like stuff like that. But to answer your question, right, was that we have a data warehouse and then we we basically throw SQL queries and Python scripts off against that, which is more traditional data science work. That's that's really cool, by the way. Really cool. I, I do think that my company we need to get to the to, to the point where you guys are and also start doing that because we have like thousands of the campaigns for different industries and we didn't manage to figure out the data yet. But I, I do think that you need to be sort of like data driven with regards to your decisions. That's kind of for sure. It helps us in three ways. I mean, it helps us one obviously internally as we're thinking about what to do and how to craft our prospecting. Two is it helps our customers. And that's probably the most important. And then three is it helps our marketing, right? Is is to be able to share that information. My view of marketing, at least personally anyway, is like I try to avoid all self-promotion. I try to avoid, I even try to avoid company promotion, which is why like if you ask me sales law specific questions, I get uncomfortable because I don't. It's kind of not how I operate. How I operate is sort of how we have been in this conversation, which is like just gonna drop a whole crap load of data on you and hopefully give you some value in the process. That's actually great. You know, when we build this sort of like uh, the Belkin's Growth Podcast, we, we don't want to promote neither Belkin's nor our customers. We just want to have a, a nice conversations and, exactly. and get some just value out of it for folks that just listening to this. And, you know, exactly. that's quick question for you. Talking about the sales loft, not about the technology, but the way you, you work, you, you do also, your SDRs do also have sort of like they do LinkedIn outreach and, and then voice drop or some phone drop or something like that. So they have this sort of like 360 kind of turnkey process where they do a bunch of different channels, correct? Yeah. I mean, the term is sort of a little out of vogue these days, but omni-channel, I guess, is the multi-channel yeah. is, the way to, is the way to think about it. So phone, email, social, and actually now increasingly more direct mail. So we have two direct mail vendors that we use and partners, Sendoso and Alice A L Y C E. So both of those are, are have been have been great for us for developing and nurturing opportunities. The LinkedIn uh, traffic grew, grew like forty percent over the past two months with regards to how people engage with them. So did it affect the way you uh, handled your outreach campaign for your SDRs? Had they been start focusing more on LinkedIn, LinkedIn or did it change the process yet for you? I think what's happened in the last two months is, is what I hinted at earlier, right? Is you've got all these SDRs. A, you've got a ton of SDRs working from home, so they're not commuting and they can be in theory and they're not distracted by banter, conversation, you know, like social... They, the social conversations is good because it helps you build your culture and, and helps you relieve stress. But like, but in the absence of that, they're going to do work. So I think SDRs worldwide have had all this extra time. So I think that at 40% increase is just a reflection of, of people having more time. I also think it's very sadly, right? 
Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, all these economists have said that GDP in the US is predicted to be sequentially down 30 to 40%, which is mind boggling when you think that GDP in any given year usually ranges like, I don't know, three to 5% increase. So to to drop 30 to 40% is astonishing. So I think part of the increase in activity is simply a response to fear by rational fear, right, of of the pipelines drying up, that you need a lot more pipeline now to to actually hit your numbers. So yes, the LinkedIn activity has increased, but I think, I'm sure you've been the recipient of this as well, which is like, so have the phone calls and so have the emails. Everything has increased probably dramatically in the last two months from a prospecting point of view. What you're saying is that sort of like is the reaction to the crisis, and it's sort of, it's not positive. It's more like in, in a more negative way. The things are getting done the same way. You just you need to push twice harder to get them done, right? I think that's correct. Yeah, I, I did again. I think it's twofold. I think it's simply that SDRs and AEs, prospectors in general, have more time and have become more efficient with that time because there's less in office distractions and less mm-hmm. commuting. So I think that's the, probably the bigger factor. But then, yes, I also feel that it is a fear reaction. Okay. Um, talking about uh, sort of like prospecting, we as a company had a challenge of sort of like figuring out, okay, which industries we can you know, generate leads with, because you know now you cannot say for sure that these industries are doing better, these are doing worse. And obviously you have some numbers, but they're always fluctuating. So you know we see that, hey, these states are coming out from the crisis, this industry is doing better, these are bad and so on and so forth. So do we have any sort of like a more systematic approach with regards to understanding what kind of industries or markets you can plug into and which you don't need to sort of like to bother at this time of the, at this time and then you need to shift that if that makes sense I think it's really hard yes we do and and but I do think it's hard to do it at scale but I'll address the sort of yes part and then I'll address the difficulty at scale part so the yes part is everyone knows that that we must be empathetic and sensitive to like particular industries right the travel and leisure industry, the restaurant industry. But even that subtle is that like your neighborhood, the places where delivery was common and takeout was common, Chinese food, Mexican food, pizza, right? Those places are are selling like gangbusters, wine and liquor and beer stores, like those places are selling like gangbusters. So uh, there's this subtlety of not everything is affected in exactly the same way. I think there is this acknowledgement that yes, you need to be empathetic and, and that there are certain industries you need to tread very lightly on. What I think you probably, if you're going to be hyper empathetic, I think before you press go on a cadence on, a, on any sort of sales engagement, it behooves you to look, look up the company's situation. You know, like, did they have a layoff recently? And if so, depending on the severity of it and what's going on for, for them specifically, like maybe this is just the time not to to try to like book a discovery and demo, right? Maybe this is the time to just reach out to them with, hey, like here's a valuable study that we did so that for the prospecting you do, try this out. So just 100% give, no give to get, whatever. So you, you might adjust to those particular industries, but you, I think you have to do that on a very one-off basis if you're going to do that. And that gets at what I was saying with scale is for better or worse, there is no perfect set of clean industry data. So what I mean by that is like, let's take a fintech company, 
is that company a financial services company or are they a, a software company? And that's the problem is like, they're actually both. And to different sellers, one seller might want to know their financial services and one seller might want to know their tech and another seller might want to know that they're both. So I think that's the issue is that there, there is actually like SIC codes or NAICS codes or JIX codes or whatever the, the, the coding methodology is. Like there is no perfect industry, thing, industry methodology. So I, I think it's super hard to, to do that sort of segmentation at extreme scale. Totally makes sense. Okay, I know that we are almost out of time and I, I know that you have a lot of calls ahead of you. So I just wanted to kind of wrap up this uh, session with you by asking this following question that I kind of was, you know, keeping in mind for the whole session <laughs> is I've, I've read that you guys are the number one employer in Atlanta, right? So, you know, people just, you know, fancy to work with you guys and for you. So why is that? What, what sort of things you guys offer or not like offer, but what, what kind of company culture you guys have? And what is the specifics that you guys have that other companies don't have that people just, you know, say, you know, I want to work for sales or because we, I mean, I personally being a, a, one of the founders of the company always work on a company culture, especially yeah. in a very challenging environment like we are right now. So again, you, you said that you have a, a hoop in the office or something that people can- It's not like- that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can answer the question very specifically. So I was a customer for years before I joined. And it was very much, I was attracted to join the company because of the people that I met, obviously, and the service experience that I had. And I think the answer to this is following is, I actually think we have less, even when we were in the office, I think we we actually have fewer of the of the sort of fun perks that most, like a lot of tech companies have. I think we actually, yeah, there's like less of that. For me, what I've discovered in working for Sales Loft is the following. Almost every company has the exact same set of core values. And they have different wording, but whatever. I think the fundamental difference between Sales Loft and other companies I've worked for, and I've worked for companies that have good cultures as well, but the fundamental difference between Sales Loft, I'm sorry, and companies that have poor cultures is that the, the CEO, co-founder, and the executive leadership team hold themselves accountable to those values. They walk the walk on those values. If they themselves deviate even in a small way from the values, they will like publicly in a, we have all hands every, every week. So in, in the all hands, they will, they will acknowledge like, hey, I, I did not live up to this particular core value. So, so I, I think it is that walk the walk and holding themselves accountable that to me is the is is the biggest difference that in places where the executive leadership team is above the values or outside the values the culture is not real like the cultures are bad and it's rarer than you would think a lot of executives are not self-aware of the fact that they are living outside of the values and are afraid to be vulnerable enough to acknowledge when they've made a mistake because we all make mistakes so yeah, long. I guess I have a long-winded diatribes on everything, but that 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 to me is what it is. It is an authenticity and commitment to the core values that makes all the difference. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Belkin's Growth Podcast and found it useful. Be sure to subscribe and catch upcoming episodes on iTunes and Stitcher.